the spirit of God came on me in the, one of the most powerful ways I've ever known. Caught me totally by surprise. I wasn't primed for it. I wasn't trying to, 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 to manipulate myself to make it happen. But I started, I just suddenly started speaking in words that I didn't, didn't understand, never heard before. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, it blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Rare Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 32. I interview Sam Storms. Sam Storms is the lead pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. He's author and author of many books and a podcaster. In this episode, we talk about spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of tongues, prophecy, and healing. So, with no further ado, let's get weird. Thanks again for being here. I'm real excited to get into uh, spiritual gifts, um, but let's start with your testimony. So let's hear a little bit about how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. Sure. Well, I was raised uh, right here in Oklahoma, and I was in a, raised in a Southern Baptist home. Both of my parents were believers. My sister, my only sibling, was a believer. Uh, we were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, never mm-hmm. missed an event. Uh, came to faith when I was about nine years old. Although I don't really recall that I didn't believe before I walked to the aisle, as was the custom in Southern Baptist churches. But in any case, if you're looking for a date, I would have been around nine. Um, went to the uh, University of Oklahoma. It's where I met my wife. Uh, we got married after our junior year. In fact, next May, we'll celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, after that, I <clears throat> went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, got my THM in historical theology, started pastoring um, my second year of seminary. I had the opportunity to serve as the interim pastor of a little Presbyterian church. And so my experience started much earlier than is the case for most, which I'm grateful for. I was really able to to develop, I think, and learn some from my mistakes, get some positive feedback from people early on. Uh, I then served, uh, graduated in 77, um, served uh, as an associate pastor with Dr. S. Lewis Johnson at Believer's Chapel for eight years until 1985. It was during that time I got my PhD in intellectual history from the University of Texas at Dallas. And then in 85, I moved to Ardmore, Oklahoma, a small town in the south, south central part of the state, pastored there for eight years. From there, um, it was during, during the time that I was in Ardmore that I had a couple of major theological shifts. It was my embrace of what is known as Christian hedonism, largely through the influence of my good friend, John Piper. And then the second was with regard to spiritual gifts. Um, uh, late 1980s, 88, 89, somewhere along in there, uh, I re-examined all the arguments I'd been given over the years and by my seminary profs about why certain gifts ceased. We're no longer operative in the church and uh, just came to realize there wasn't any biblical basis for that. I just couldn't find any scripture that would support the notion. So my theology of the working to the Holy Spirit um, was radically transformed in the late 80s. Uh, In 1993, um, I moved to Kansas City and was a part of what was then called Metro Vineyard Fellowship. Uh, later changed its name to Metro Christian Fellowship. We left the vineyard in, let me think, 1990, 
1996 or 97, somewhere along, I think it's 96. Uh, was there until 2000 and then left and moved to Wheaton, Illinois. And I taught in the biblical and theological studies department of Wheaton College for four years. Um, left there in 04, started enjoying God Ministries, basically traveled the country and the world, wrote a lot of books until 2008 when I came to Bridgeway Church here in Oklahoma City. Uh, it's a church that I had helped to start back in 1993, 1994, even though I wasn't here. I had a lot of good friends who were involved in that church plan. So it was kind of a coming home for me. And I've been here, what, a little over 13 years now. And in August of next year, August of 2022, uh, I'll be stepping down as lead pastor hmm. or whenever I finish the book of Romans that I'm preaching through right now. Hmm. So that's, that kind of gives you the short version of my life and ministry over these many years. Cool. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, why are you stepping down? <laughs> uh, I'm just curious. Yeah, the big question. A um, couple of reasons. Number one, by the time I step down, I'll be almost 72 years old. And I think that, I really think the church needs younger leadership. I think there's something that comes with um, younger middle-aged men who, uh, who I think just have more creative ideas, uh, are more visionary in their leadership style, which I'm really not. Um, I think also um, there's the, uh, as the years increase, see I've been doing this for about 47 years now, it'll be 48 years by this time next year. Um, you tend to lose, the only way I know how to explain it, you tend to lose your emotional resiliency for dealing with all sorts of challenges and problems and the demands of a large church and managing the staff and uh, overseeing all the things that uh, require oversight. Um, and then um, I, um, I want to devote more time to writing. Uh, that's really second to preaching. That's my greatest passion. And then I think finally, it's just, and again, this is uh, not really rooted in anything objective. You just get the sense from the Lord that um, the time is now. Um, I think one of the things that has bothered me and it's kind of scared me, I've watched how certain uh, pastors, especially of some mega churches, have hung on too long. And I've watched their communication skills diminish and they seem to be oblivious to it. And I fear that sometimes these individuals have such a high profile that the elders of their church or their pastoral staff or even their friends are reluctant to tell them, hey, it may be time for you to step aside because they don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't ever want to put anybody in the position of having to do that with me. Yeah. So just through prayer, through processing this, that's uh, um, that's kind of where I've come. So I'm, I'm happy with the process. and. Uh, we've just concluded uh, seeking my uh, successor, and we're excited about him. He's excited about being here, so we're looking forward to that. Wow. Well, it sounds like um, really over the course of your whole ministry, um, you, you're, you've matured. Uh, as you mentioned, you sort of changed uh, your views, and uh, you know, from what I'm hearing here, um, it's really a, a sign of you know, Christian maturity. Um, and uh, I'm curious, what will be your role uh, once you step down? Yeah, well, we've made it clear we're not going anywhere. Uh, this is our church home. This is our church family. My wife and I will be here 
Lord willing, um, until Jesus comes back or we go to meet him. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't know exactly what that role would be. Uh, the elders and I have not talked about that yet. Uh, we've talked about starting a, a school of biblical and theological studies, training in ministry, um, maybe teaching some classes here and there. But um, a lot of that will depend on the new lead pastor and what he envisions uh, my role. And if it's, I, I won't be as an, I won't be an elder. I think it's wise that I step off the elder board. Um, but that really hadn't been determined yet. So we'll just have to wait and see how that unfolds over the next uh, eight to 10 months. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you, like I said earlier, you went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I know they're pretty uh, dispensational in, in what they teach. And I know you're a, a big uh, proponent of millennialism. Uh, I know you've written a book on that. And so I, um, you know, I just want to put that out there for the listener of, of how I've seen that uh, you've, you've matured. And I think that's a, a just a such a, a Christ-like quality in a Christian, especially someone in leadership that's been in leadership for so long that uh, you're willing to make such a huge shift and change um, theologically. Um, you know, that's sort of a rare thing to see and uh, I think that's you know to be admired. So, um, and I appreciate that. And then also your views on, on gifts, which is the subject of what we're going to get into today. Um, most of my preparation. Just, like, Go ahead. Let me interject real quick before yeah. I lose track of what you just said. Yeah. Um, about why I made that shift without giving the biblical and theological reasons. Yeah. Because there's a very important underlying principle. Um, I bind my conscience to nothing or anyone other than the written word of God. So <clears throat> I, do, I do not feel any obligation to a denomination, mm. to a church, to a tradition, uh, to a creed or a confession. Um, it's not to say that I don't consult them. It's not to say that they aren't beneficial. But, you know, many, uh, just even when I was at Dallas, uh, you know, the professors there had to sign that statement of faith or they couldn't teach. They'd lose their job. Yeah. Now, I trust and hope and pray that it's the case that they signed it because they believed everything in it. But I had a few conversations with some who struggled. And I've talked with other professors at other seminaries, and it restricts their capacity to really think and explore because their job might be put in jeopardy. Yeah. And I've just always said, I, I am bound and under the authority of the functional authority and the inspiration of scripture. And wherever the Bible leads me, that's where I'm going to go. I, I don't care if it violates what I've preached for 45 years before. If I find out that I've been preaching it incorrectly, I'm going to change and I want to make it known. Um, I, I am bound in conscience to one authority and one authority only. And that's the written word of God. Amen. So that, that's why I made that change. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you interjected and, and said that. Um, uh, it's very refreshing to, to hear you say that, because uh, that, like I said, it's not always the case. Um, so uh, where I was going, I was saying that uh, I used your podcast to prep for this interview, uh, listen to several different episodes. What was the um, inspiration behind starting that podcast? Well, it was a little bit because of um, getting ready for the time when I'll no longer be preaching every Sunday and no longer leading this church. 
Um, and I was approached actually by Charisma Podcast Network. They've published a couple of my books and they sought me out and they said, we would like you to join our network. And have you ever considered doing a podcast? Now we had done one here as a church where a lot of our pastoral team had contributed and some of our elders. So it just got me thinking, hey, this is another way for me to, to be able to hopefully help people work through controversial issues and um, you know, the world is turning very much to a podcast orientation, you know, just in the last couple of years that podcasts have just exploded. There's so many of them. And uh, I thought this would be a good time to get started on it. So I prayed about it and decided that I was going to do it. So now I'm doing it uh, every Tuesday and Friday, Lord willing, there will be a new podcast available. Right on. Yeah, cool. So yeah, for the listener, I'll, I'll, I'll link that in, in the show notes. Um, yeah, you got a, a lot of really great uh, content on there uh, that uh, I enjoyed. So uh, I want to get to spiritual gifts, but I, I have to ask because I read in your bio, you said you're coming up on 50 years of marriage and in your bio says that you proposed on your very first date. So I, I just cannot get on to the, the rest of this interview without hearing that story. Oh, yeah. Well, I tell people, uh, don't go and do likewise. <laughs> That was not because of, uh, you know, maturity or wisdom. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of a long story. I, I had dated all through high school and even through my freshman year of college, and I was sick and tired of it. And I prayed fervently. I said, Lord, I need you to show me who I'm going to marry because I do not want to continue this dating scenario. Yeah. And just in a very sovereign and clear way, I felt like the Lord identified that individual and on our first date, um, I proposed to who's now my wife, Ann, and she changed the subject immediately. She thought I was nuts. Um, oh, wow. But, um, you know, I, I kind of circled back around six months later and made it a little bit more formal and official. But, yeah, so yeah I, I, I don't know how to explain it other than it was youthful immaturity, um, a man who had just fallen head over heels in love with a woman that I'd only met two days before so wow it's, it's kind of a strange thing so yeah uh, laugh at it with me laugh at me for it but don't go and do likewise <laughs> yeah i got you well no that's romantic that's, 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 a, that's a cool story i like that um but uh so yes we're gonna get into uh spiritual gifts today um okay. i want to start with uh baptism of the holy spirit you uh have you've spoken out about this and I know you have a view that may be contrary to, to others. So what is your view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Sure. Actually, I have, I think, two or three podcasts on that very subject. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the Pentecostal and to some extent charismatic tradition has been known for this one distinctive, namely that spirit baptism is something that occurs to the believer in all likelihood, and in most cases, separate from and subsequent to their conversion. So they can be born again, they can be justified by faith in Jesus, they can receive the Holy Spirit, he permanently indwells them, but that there is an additional second experience that they call spirit baptism that can come weeks, months, even years later, uh, after earnestly seeking it and praying for it, that imparts spiritual gifts or boldness for witness or deeper intimacy with the Lord. Um, the the uh, classical Pentecostal tradition argues 
that the way in which you can know if this has happened is if you speak in tongues. So if you haven't spoken in tongues, you haven't been baptized in the spirit. Most in the charismatic world, even those who hold that it's a separate experience subsequent to conversion, few of them would say that speaking in tongues is what they call the initial physical evidence. Um, especially those in what we call the third wave would not em embrace that idea. Um, so I believe spirit baptism happens at the point of conversion. It happens for every Christ-trusting, born-again believer, um, and it is the action of Christ. Christ is the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't baptize anyone in anything. Mm. It's Jesus, who is the one who baptizes us in the Spirit, and by doing so, incorporates us into what we call the spiritual body of Christ. Mm. Um, now, having said all that, I think it is very unfortunate that people have divided over this issue um, because the question is this, is there biblical, are there biblical grounds for believing that you can have <clears throat> life-changing, empowering encounters with the spirit subsequent to your conversion? And I think the answer is explicitly in the New Testament, yes. And there are multiple examples of this. So I would say, if somebody said to me, Sam, have you had a life-changing encounter with the Spirit subsequent to your conversion that maybe through which you received a spiritual gift or several, or that deepened your intimacy with the Lord, I would say, yes, I did. I just wouldn't call it Spirit baptism. I might call it the infilling of the Spirit, uh, the anointing of the Spirit. I don't know what you call it, but I think it's real. That's the issue, not so much what we label this experience, but um, is it genuine? Is it biblical? So I, I use an illustration, and I'll use this one real quickly. Uh, it's like um, if you came to me, we were in the same room, and you said, Sam is speaking to Sam. You said, Sam, um, I have a headache. I've prayed. It just won't go away. Do you happen to have any aspirin? I said, yeah, I think so. So I reach into my briefcase and pull out this little bottle and I give you two white tablets. And um, about 30 minutes later, I come to you and I say, hey, how's your headache? And you say, wow, it's gone. That aspirin is really powerful medicine. And then I say to you, well, I'm sorry to have to point out to you that it wasn't aspirin. It was Tylenol. I, I did had it in an unmarked bottle and I gave you the wrong medicine. Now, your response would probably be, I don't care what you call it, whether it was aspirin or Tylenol, it worked. It had medicinal, medicinal power. My headache's gone. So my point is this, whether you call this post-conversion encounter spirit baptism, spirit filling, or you have some other label for it, that's irrelevant to me. The question is, did it really happen? And does it then do you have biblical grounds for believing that it happened? So that's my view of spirit baptism, and that's why I don't think it's an issue that is deserving of Christians fighting or dividing over. Yeah, I agree, and I thought that was really a good perspective um, because you're, you're right. I think regardless of where you land on it, we would all agree that we, we can have that experience. Some might call it the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, some might, might not. Um, before I move on from that, I do want to ask about uh, Acts 19, because that's one of the, the verses or passages that's used often by someone that would be um, on, the, on the other side of this argument. And they would say, well, sure. we can see clearly here that I, I believe his name is, uh, is Apollo that is 
he only knows of John's baptism and they were have to been taught uh, about um, Christ's baptism. So uh, can you explain that in, in light of sure. what you're saying? Sure. Yeah. It, Paul encounters uh, some who are called the disciples of John. So he's talking about followers of John the Baptist. And we have to, it's important for people in the 21st century to try to understand what life was like in the first century. Events that happened in one town were not immediately communicated to another. They didn't have Twitter, email, telephone, TV, all the forms of communication that we take for granted. So there were undoubtedly people spread out throughout uh, uh, the ancient land of Israel um, who had never heard of what had happened at Pentecost. Um, so here Paul encounters these individuals who obviously had heard John the Baptist, his call to repentance, they had submitted to baptism, but for whatever reason, they had not heard about Pentecost. They didn't know anything about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think they're saying, we, don't, we haven't even heard that there's a thing called the Holy Spirit who exists. I think they're saying, we didn't know anything about this thing called Pentecost. We didn't know there was this outpouring. Yeah. So Paul says, well, then into what were you baptized? And I say, well, into John's baptism. So Paul preaches the gospel to them. He tells them that the Messiah whom John had prophesied has now come. He's lived, he's died, he's been raised again. He's exalted the right hand of the Father. The Spirit has been poured out. And they believe and then they receive the spirit and they prophesy and speak in tongues. Now, the reason why I don't think you can use this as a model or a paradigm or an example for today is because we're talking about individuals who lived what I call in this, this overlap between the ages. Um, we, we can't have that anymore. We don't have moving from one redemptive period into another. But here we have those who had repented and submitted to John's baptism during the time of the old covenant. Before the life, before the death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus, who now encounter truths that are taking place under the new covenant. So I, I call it, it's almost as if they lived in some sort of time war, uh, redemptive historical time war. Um, and you just can't repeat their experience. You're not going to encounter people today who have heard of a baptism of repentance by John the Baptist and predicting the coming of the Messiah. And here we are 2,000 years later, and they suddenly discover, oh, you mean there's a Holy Spirit who was poured out? We didn't know anything about that. It's just an unrepeatable event. It's a one-time unique incident. I think there's a lot to learn from it, but I don't think what we learn from it is the normative pattern by which people receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective. And I actually realized now that you're describing that, I think, um, I was describing another passage that wasn't Acts 19 with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, but I think th th it's the same principle that um, because, like you said, not everyone was, was there at the, the Pentecost. That was something that at, at that time um, had to be taught explicitly, which was different than what had come before. So um, it's really helpful uh, to, to put that in, in context. Um, so let's... Uh, Move into gifts. I want to start by asking your opinion about the gift inventory tests that, that people uh, can take to kind of sort of figure out and do like a self-assessment mm -hmm. of, of their gifting. Um, what do you think about those? 
I'm not a big fan of them, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong or bad. Uh, my wife actually really enjoys them. She's taken them all. I know a yeah. lot of people who have, and for some people it's been helpful. Yeah. Um, I, there are a couple of reasons why I don't like them. One is um, I don't find, I haven't found that they are sufficiently nuanced as to take into consideration differing personalities, different callings in life, different ministries. Um, we're all wired differently by God. And sometimes those inventories don't take that into account. Um, the other reason, another reason is that I've, in many people I've talked to, they've taken them. They've concluded that this or that or the other is their spiritual gift, even though they've never operated in it. And they don't from that point on. And so they're confused and they're misled. And they think, what, what have I done? I, I was told by this test that this is my spiritual gift, but nothing's happening. Um, third, um, I take a much more, if I can even call it pragmatic approach to discovering one's spiritual gift. I think sometimes we spend too much time kind of navel gazing, looking inwardly, being introspective, saying, what is my gift? What do I, and I think to that is to become more extrospective. That's not even a word, introspective, extrospective. Yeah. Looking outwardly. Yeah. Uh, so when people say, uh, I, I want to know what my spiritual gift is. And I say to them, well, let me ask you a question. Lift up your head. Look about, about, about yourself on other people. What do you see? Do you see someone who's struggling financially? They really need help. Pray that God would give you the grace and the faith and the generosity to write a check to them to help them out. What you might discover in doing that is, oh, maybe, maybe I have the gift of giving. Or if you see someone who is sick, um, you know, sit down with them, lay hands on them and pray for them that they would be healed. And maybe God will answer that. Maybe he'll grant you a gift for a healing. Or, you, you know, you're sitting in a coffee shop and somebody strikes up conversation with you and you discover they're not Christian and you start sharing the gospel with them and you lead them to faith. Oh, lo and behold, maybe, maybe you have a gift for evangelism. I mean, I could go down through all the list of the 2021 spiritual gifts. And what I'm suggesting is instead of just examining your own soul, look out and find a need in the body of Christ or in society as a, in general, and step into that need, trusting that God is going to empower you and equip you to meet it. And in doing so, I think your gift will find you. I think you'll be surprised at how often God the spirit of God will meet you in the midst of that need and you find yourself operating in his power to build up or to bless somebody. And that's, I think, the most helpful way of discovering your spiritual gift. Now, all that being said, I don't want to discourage people from taking an inventory test. If you think that's yeah. going to be helpful, go ahead. But if you get frustrated by it, take my advice, open your eyes, identify a need, step into it, trusting that God is going to empower you to meet it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I want to ask as well in first Corinthians 12, it, it seems to indicate, or at least you could interpret what Paul is saying is that everyone is given a gift at conversion. Is it your understanding that you are given one specific gift and that, that is your, your gift given by the Holy spirit or can, can one receive multiple gifts or experience different gifts throughout their, sure. their Christian faith? Yes, the answer is you can receive multiple gifts. 
I think I counted up around nine or 10 that the apostle Paul had very clearly described in the New Testament. Yeah. All that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, and he says the same thing in 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 4, is that every believer has at least one gift and it is given at the point of conversion. Right. But we know that you can, a Christian can get, can receive more gifts um, because in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, and again in 14, 39, Paul exhorts all believers earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Why would he say that if Paul believed that once you're saved, you've already gotten all the gifts you'll ever get? That would be a dumb right. exhortation. That would be misleading. He right. says, especially that you may prophesy. Um, then late, a little bit later on in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 14, he tells the person who prays in a tongue, pray that you may interpret. So here's a Christian who already has at least one spiritual gift, the gift of tongues. And Paul's saying, you need to pray that God will give you another one, namely the gift of interpretation. So there is nothing whatsoever in scripture that would indicate that whatever spiritual gift uh, you got when you were converted is the only gift you will ever get. I think the reason why some people make that argument goes back to what we talked about earlier. They are pushing back against this idea of having second, third, fourth powerful encounters with the spirit subsequent to conversion. They think that if you affirm that you can get multiple gifts after conversion, that this is going to add fuel to the fire to those who believe that spirit baptism is separate from and subsequent to conversion. Mm. And that's not, that's not the case at all. So receiving additional spiritual gifts is simply, again, it's all up to the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He apportions them as he wills. But certainly there are numerous indications, and I even, didn't even give you all of them, in which we see um, that spiritual gifts can come to us, two, three, four, five, ten of them, who knows, uh, subsequent to conversion. So I think I have, I know I have the gift of pastoring, I have the gift of teaching, I have the gift of, uh, of leadership, I speak in tongues, um, occasionally God will enable me to prophesy, not often, but rarely. Sometimes I've been used in, in healing before, but I wouldn't call myself a healer. We can talk about healing in just a moment. So I don't know how many gifts I have. Um, there may be even more that I'm not even aware of that, uh, um, that I would look back on my life and ministry and say, yeah, I think maybe I was operating in that spiritual gift at that time. Cool. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great perspective. And I, I certainly got that from listening to your podcast and, you know, encourage the listener. Um, having listened to this episode to, to pray that God would give you more gifts, as, as you just mentioned. Um, Cause I think oftentimes there's a misconception that, you know, I've got my one gift at conversion and that's my, and that's part of um, what could potentially be uh, a downfall to the inventory gift is it sort of pigeonholes you down to like one or, or maybe right. two gifts. And then you can sort of, you can just snuggle into that, uh, that one gift and identify yourself with that. And, and that, that's, that's good, but you could in a way close yourself off to, to the Holy spirit and gifting you uh, in, in other areas as well. Right. So, so that, that's good perspective. Um, I want to start, uh, I want to get into tongues and I'd like to actually start our discussion with, uh, on tongues with your first experience uh, with speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was raised a cessationist. For those who don't know what that means, it's the belief that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased or were drawn from the church probably toward the end of the first century and are no longer valid. That's the view that I embraced growing up. It's the view I was taught 
my first encounter with tongues happened in the summer of 1970. That was the summer that the Jesus movement broke out in Southern California. And I was there. I was on a campus crusade for Christ, now called Crew Summer Project in Lake Tahoe. And at the end of the summer, we went to a Bible study one night. And a man by the name of Harold Bredesen was there. I'd never heard of him. So now I came to discover it's a very famous and influential Lutheran charismatic who was highly instrumental in the uh, spread of the charismatic renewal in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and he talked about this gift of speaking in tongues. And he gave me a book. I went up to him after the study and I <clears throat> asked some questions of him. And he gave me a book called They Speak With Other Tongues by a man named John Sherrill. Um, not the greatest book in the world, but it at least got me thinking. So I read it, <clears throat> excuse me, I <clears throat> uh, went back to uh, Oklahoma, started my sophomore year in college, and the Lord just placed this incredible burden and desire on my heart to experience that gift. And so every night from about at about 10 o'clock, I would leave my fraternity house, walk to this little elementary school, sit under the same tree and pray. And I did this probably for five or six weeks every night. And then one night I was sitting there and I, I wasn't trying to say anything. I wasn't speaking. I was just thinking. And I mean, I got, I don't know, what's the word? Um, the Spirit of God came on me in the, one of the most powerful ways I've ever known. Caught me totally by surprise. I wasn't primed for it. I wasn't trying to, 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 to manipulate myself to make it happen. But I started, I just suddenly started speaking in words that I didn't, didn't understand, never heard before. It was as if the veil between heaven and earth had split and pulled away. Now, some people have said to me, Hey, Sam, maybe contrary to your theology, that was your spirit baptism. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was just a spirit filling. I, I really don't care. I just know it happened. It yeah. was life changing. So after about a minute or so, I stopped and I, I stopped at will. I, I knew I could stop if I wanted to. And I was a little confused by it all. Uh, I knew something supernatural had happened. But through the advice, I, I know they loved me, they cared for me, but through the counsel of some, uh, some leaders, I basically shut it down. And I didn't speak in tongues again for 20 years. And it wasn't until literally 20 years plus one month, it was November of 1990. I was with my friend Jack Deere at a conference in New Orleans. And I told him this story and he laid hands on me and prayed for God to reignite that gift in me. And he did. And so I pray in tongues all the time. Um, when I'm alone, even when I'm in church, but under my breath, as it were, I, or even, even out loud when I know nobody can hear me, because in church, it needs to be followed by interpretation. So I make sure it's just something that I do um, in my relationship with the Lord. I wrote an entire book on this. It's called The Language of Heaven, Crucial Questions About Speaking in Tongues. And I try to answer every question that has ever come up about this subject. And I address every biblical text on the issue as well. Um, so I don't believe that all Christians are supposed to speak in tongues. I don't think there's any one spiritual gift that every believer is supposed to have. But if it's a gift that people want, I say, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do what I did. Spend every night um, for a long time asking God to bestow this. and Be humble and willing to, if he says no, be willing to accept that and thank him for the gifts that he has given you.
Wow. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's an incredible story. Um, I have questions I want to follow up on, but, um, you know, on the, on the, and you, you basically said on the advice to, of others that you, you shut it down. So I want to hear why that was um, and maybe speak to that a little, a little bit more because sure. I think sure. for, you know, a lot of people, maybe they don't experience this gift um, because they're afraid of it. Um, they don't understand yeah. it. And so um, once again, just, uh, you know, why did you speak a little bit more of why you chose to shut it down and then, um, you know, why you think that uh, people experience this kind of, uh, I don't know, fear uh, about this gift? Sure. Well, in my case, immediately after this happened, I went back to my fraternity house, called the man who was um, kind of my mentor with Campus Crusade. He was on staff with Crusade and Crusade had a policy against tongues at that time. It was really strange because I sat down in his car. I didn't say a word to him. And I said, I'll, you'll never guess what happened tonight. He looked at me and said, you spoke in tongues. Well, how did you know? He said, I just had a sense. And then he said, you know, you can't do that anymore. I said, what? I was the student leader. I was hosting all of the corporate gatherings of crusade at the time. They, I was involved in the leadership structure. And he said, it's just a policy of crusade that if you, if you do that again, we're going to have to remove you from leadership. Well, that was crushing to me because I, I was at that time even thought I was called to join staff of crusade. Mm -hmm. So just kind of out of subservience and fear, I just said, nah, maybe it's not worth it. I don't want to lose my, <clears throat> I don't want to lose my stature and my role in this ministry. And then uh, what, three years later, I'm at Dallas Theological Seminary where I was being taught regularly that the, the gift doesn't exist and therefore it was either psychological manipulation or demonic or self-induced altered state of consciousness or whatever. Deep down inside, I knew that wasn't the case, but um, it was, again, it was fear. It was wanting to be accepted and not rejected by, by my colleagues and my, and my professors. Uh, and then of course, there's always this thing of seeing fanatics who really abuse gifts that make you think, man, if that's what it means to speak in tongues or to be charismatic, I don't want to go anywhere near it. And so that, those were among the variety of reasons. But I, like I said, deep down inside, I knew better. Um, I, I, and I repented to the Lord. I said, Lord, I, you gave me this gift. I believe it's real. I suppressed it. I quenched the spirit in my heart. And Jack had recommended to me 2 Timothy 1.6, where Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. The idea that apparently Timothy had a gift and he had neglected it, suppressed it, whatever. And it, it kind of just diminished to this barely glowing ember in his heart. <clears throat> so Paul says, fan it into flame, bring it mm -hmm. back into full force. And so that's what I did. I began to pray again, asking the Lord to renew it in me. And he did. Wow. Um, so I want to follow up on that because, you know, as you mentioned, it, I, I've talked to people that have their experience of tongues freaked them out. You know, they maybe walked into a new church setting that they were unfamiliar with. They heard it and they thought, you know, sort of like some of the, you know, people that uh, were standing by at Pentecost, you know, they, they thought they were drunk. But, you know, some, someone might say, well, these people are just kind of nuts um, or they're just making it up. And, and and so, uh, you know, they'll justify, you know, through all such different means, as you mentioned, a few different reasons of uh, explanations, rather, of what tongues could be. Uh, but there's, it, it stands out 
uh, amongst spiritual gifts, whereas something like healing or prophesize, we can we, we can see the purpose behind it. And I think there's some confusion behind tongues because people don't really understand what it is. What is the purpose sure. of tongues? Sure. Well, I think Paul explicitly identifies it in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, I'm just looking at my text right now. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. If I'm speaking to God when I pray in tongues, when I speak in tongues, and Paul says that's exactly what I'm doing. What is speaking to God? It's prayer, petition, supplication, intercession, whatever you want to call it. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about singing in tongues. So it's not only prayer, it's also a way to praise God. Uh, he also says a little bit later down in verse uh, 16 of chapter 14, that when you pray in tongues, you're expressing thanksgiving to God. So it's primarily prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. So it is a way of communicating the deepest desires and, and passions of my heart with God in a language that has been crafted uniquely and specially for me by the Holy Spirit, by which I have the confidence that God is hearing my deepest desires. When, when I run out of words in English and I'm kind of at a, my wits end on what to say, I feel like the Spirit of God has enabled me to communicate that to the Father in a way that is uh, very clear to him, even though I don't understand what I'm saying. Like Paul himself said, that um, when I pray with my spirit, my mind is unfruitful. He's saying, I, I don't understand what I'm saying. But what's the conclusion? Well, he, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to shut it down then. I'm, gonna, I'm never going to do this again. No. Right. He says, I'm going to pray with my spirit. I'm going to pray with my mind, by which he means I'm going to pray in in, in a language I understand. He's going to do both. So tongues is primarily vertical in its orientation. Um, teaching is a gift that's horizontal. You do it on behalf of others around you. Tongues is primarily, if not exclusively, I don't want to say exclusively, but primarily vertical. It's praying to God. It's worshiping God. It's giving thanks to God. So that primarily, I think, is the uh, is the nature of the gift itself. Cool. Yeah, thank you uh, for the explanation. Um, I want to go to Pentecost because a lot of people, their explanation of tongues is that this is just other earthly languages, mm -hmm. uh, which seems to be what's taking place at Pentecost. Um, so are, are they, same thing, are they praising, praying in other earthly languages? Um, what's the difference between um, when we're sure. speaking in tongues in an, in an earthly language and a heavenly language? Um, and then is everyone's heavenly language the same? No, everyone's heavenly language is not the same. I think they're uniquely crafted by the spirit for each individual. Now, what happened in Acts 2? Yes, those were definitely human languages spoken somewhere in the world that the disciples of Jesus had never learned before that the spirit enables them to speak. Undoubtedly, that's the case. The mistake made is in thinking that, therefore, all tongue speech is going to be the same. And in fact, based on Pentecost in Acts 2, many argue that its purpose is obviously to be spoken in the presence of unbelievers for the purpose of communicating the gospel to them. It's an evangelistic tool because there were unbelievers there. 
They hear them speaking in their own language. They're extolling the mighty works of God and so on. The problem with that, first of all, is there are only two other instances of tongues in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. And in both cases, there are no unbelievers present. Mm. So if the gift is only designed to be used to evangelize unbelievers, why is it that the two of the three times it occurs in Acts, there are no unbelievers present, only believers? Right. And, and then also, when we come to 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, and he says in verse 10, uh, that to another believer, various kinds of tongues are given. He repeats the same language uh, down in uh, verse 28, various kinds of tongues. Um, so I think Paul is saying, maybe on occasion, tongues will be like Acts 2, but on other occasions, it might be angelic speech, angelic languages, or languages that the Spirit of God uniquely shapes and imparts to you. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the verse I read earlier in verse 2 of chapter 14, think about it this way. If all tongues is a human language spoken somewhere in the world, then Paul would be wrong when he says that the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, because that's what a human language is. Right. So anybody who would be present um, when, let's say, somebody's in the church at Corinth and they're speaking in a known human language, maybe Parthian or, or some other, uh, one of the other dialects mentioned in Acts 2, and somebody present would say, well, I, he's speaking to me. I understand him. He's not speaking mysteries. I, I, that's my language. Right. So I think Paul very clearly indicates not only here, but elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 14, that although tongues may on occasion, and I've known instances where this has happened, be a language spoken somewhere in the world that you've never learned, I think primarily, the vast majority of instances, it's a unique linguistic structure given to each individual believer as the Holy Spirit wills. Yeah. And I've heard you also explain that we also see the gift of interpretation. So it also will argue in the same way, if someone's speaking a known earthly language, then there would be no need for a, a gifting for interpretation because- right. because You just need to be bilingual. <laughs> right, you just need exactly. To, you just need to be able to speak. It'd be the only spiritual gift for which no spiritual supernatural power is required. Just based right. on your educational upbringing, and your ability to speak um, a number of languages uh, would account for how you could interpret what was being said. And that just runs counter to everything Paul says in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I guess otherwise, you could say that somehow you would, like, an other earthly language would be made known to you um, through the Spirit. But, you know, based on the rest of the context, that really doesn't seem to be uh, what's taking place even though it's probably possible. Um, yeah. I want to ask about, you You mentioned that your first experience, you you stopped at will, uh, yet you, you uh, mentioned that the Spirit came upon you as a surprise and powerfully. Mm -hmm. Can you speak in tongues at will? Yes. Yeah, and, and, anytime. And, and, anytime. Is it ever thrust upon you that it's not on your will i don't think i've ever had that happen since that one encounter back in 1970 now there are times 
when it is so, uh, it's so easy, especially during times of worship, when we're engaged in corporate singing. Um, I mean, it just, it is so natural to me. It's just second nature um, mm. that it just happens. Now, I control it. I can stop. I can not speak. I sing in tongues. I pray in tongues during those times. I don't have to. So, yeah, I think tongues is always under the control of the person who has it. I don't think that anybody is going to be so overwhelmed by the spirit that they say, you know, I, I shouldn't have spoken in tongues, but in the corporate gathering, but I, I couldn't help myself. I was just so overcome by the spirit. I don't believe that's true. I think you can have a powerful experience with the spirit, but I think the spirit uh, does not overwhelm a believer in such a way that they would end up violating the very principles and regulations that Paul sets forth in first Corinthians 14. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So I want to shift into prophecy and I'd like to start with your, what I believe to be your first experience. Uh, we did a podcast where you mentioned you were at a conference with Jack Deere. Um, so let's start there and, and share that experience. Sure. Um, yeah, this was January of 1991. So what, 30 years ago. Wow. More than 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, I was at a huge conference in Anaheim, California, and I was taken into a, a, prior, a separate room from the convention center, about, a, I don't know, 75 people in there. And I just sat and watched and listened and tried to learn what was happening. And the, after about an hour, I was the only one left in the room. And these three gentlemen sitting up front called me forward. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And, uh, Make a long story short, this one man looked at me, peered into my eyes. He said, I'm going to tell you what you've been praying in your hotel room the last several nights. And he, he repeated my prayer to me verbatim. Hmm. It, was, it wasn't a summary. It was just literally verbatim what I had been praying. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was a little shocking, but I kept a pretty good poker face. And then he said, you're a pastor, aren't you? No way he could have known that. I said, yeah. So let me tell you what's going on in your church and how it's going to resolve itself. And he did that as well. So I was, I was confronted, whether that was prophecy or the word of knowledge, doesn't really matter to me. It was a revelatory gift. Um, and so I've had that happen a few other times. I've been on the receiving end of that kind of uh, ministry. I've had, oh, a handful of occasions, not many, certainly not enough that would qualify anybody or qualify me as a prophet. Um, I think all believers, by the way, have the potential to prophesy. The Spirit of God can speak to any believer and use them to speak words of encouragement and edification to any other believer. Um, but that's happened about a half dozen, maybe 10 times if I really went back and chronicled them all. So that was my first encounter with it. And it was life-changing. It really was. Yeah. I remember uh, your podcast, you said that you, you went back to your hotel you're certain that it was bugged oh. so you weren't oh yeah i left that part out i'll tell i'll tell that part i went back to my hotel room and i got out on my hands and knees but it wasn't to pray um i looked for a bugging device <laughs> i thought to myself my good friend jack deer is trying to lure me into a cult and he bugged my room and then passed off the information to this guy <clears throat> so that i would be hoodwinked into joining their group and I thought, wait a minute, Sam, why is it so hard for you to believe that God heard your prayers and then in turn reveal that to somebody else so they could speak that back to you for your encouragement? Hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I'm glad you shared that because I think it does get at what a lot of people experience some of that same fear towards some of these gifts that you know, we don't really have a whole lot of experience with. It's unknown. And I think that's why I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be talking with you and kind of, uh, you know, get at some of these maybe misconceptions and, and talk about what it looks like practically in a church setting. Um, let's start with, I, I know a lot of people's, and this is really, you know, prior to prepping and kind of looking into this a little bit more uh, recently, uh, my experience with prophecy is, is, unfortunately, it's, people usually on YouTube and they're sharing a dream that they had about um, something that's, that's going to happen. It'll be about the rapture and then it doesn't take place or it'll be about, um, you know, Trump getting elected and it doesn't take place. And so speak a little bit to that, uh, but I want, I want to, sure. what is the difference between forth telling and, and foretelling? Um, because like I said, most people, when they hear prophecy, they probably think it's only just predicting the future. Yeah. In fact, it's rarely predicting the future. In the New Testament, we have very few predictive prophecies, very few foretellings. It's almost always foretelling. Um, yeah, the whole Trump prophecy thing was very unfortunate. I think people um, just get carried away in their political convictions and desires are misinterpreted as if God is speaking to them. Um, I think people can have dreams that are misleading, although I do think God speaks to us through dreams. Acts chapter two says that characteristic of the new covenant age of the spirit is that you're young and you're old will dream dreams. So I do think that dreams do play a role, but they have to be evaluated. Somebody dreams, they said, come to me and they say, Sam, I had a dream and the rapture is going to happen next week. I said, well, I have a problem with that. Because Jesus said very clearly that no one knows the time of his coming. Uh, so I doubt seriously if you're the only person on the face of the earth that he's decided to tell. So yeah. we have to test these things by scripture. Um, so now, unfortunately, there are those who get carried away. Um, I actually wrote a, a, a blog post on this very subject answering the question, of what do we do with those who prophesied Trump's reelection? And I say, you know, humbly, just admit you were wrong. You, you projected from your own conscious desires into your heart, thinking that that was God speaking, and you were wrong. There's nothing wrong with just owning up to it and humbly saying, hey, I repent. I spoke when I shouldn't have. You know, Paul says we know in part and we prophesy in part, and I, I got the wrong part when it comes to that. Right. Um, so I think that's important. Yeah. So prophecy is primarily um, I think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. So it's a way of ministering. I mean, when that guy spoke that word to me, I was profoundly encouraged. It really boosted my heart and deepened my faith in the working of the Holy Spirit. That's its purpose, not, yeah. not predicting when the next earthquake in California is going to come. I mean, I can do that. And I don't even need to get to prophecy. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate that because, um, and unfortunately that's just something that, uh, I didn't really have any, any dealings with m myself, but, uh, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I kind of keeping on that same sort of forth telling what we kind of see on YouTube and on the internet, um, is, is it possible? Cause 
Well, let me just start by asking you, what's the difference between, because we would look at someone like that, that predicts the rapture and it doesn't take place. And a lot of people also on the internet will come out and, and come against that and refer to those people as false prophets. Um, so what is the difference between a false prophet and someone that prophesies falsely? Oh, it's a huge difference. Best I can tell in the New Testament, the only people called false prophets are unbelievers, people who are not born again, people who deny the incarnation of Christ, deny his deity. Um, all of us have prophesied falsely in the sense that we've missed it. We might have spoken partially accurate, partially inaccurate. So I don't know anybody who has nailed it 100% of the time because there's, people need to understand there are three elements in every genuine prophetic word. There is the revelation that comes from God. That's always inerrant, infallible, and perfect. God doesn't speak error. But then there's the interpretation. We can misinterpret what we have heard, just in the same way that you and I could sit down right now with our Bibles in front of us and read the same verse of Scripture and come away with two different interpretations, one of which may be wrong, both of which may be wrong. Right. So the fact that we have God's infallible revelation does not guarantee we're going to have infallible interpretations. And then even if we do interpret it correctly, we might misapply it. We might say, well, I think this means that you should or should not do this or that. And that by me might be misguided. So the three elements, revelation, interpretation, application, only the first is guaranteed infallible because God has spoken it. God has spoken infallibly in his written word, but that doesn't mean I always interpret it correctly. In fact, I've misinterpreted it many times over my life and had to go back and say, folks, I, I apologize. I repent. Let me tell you what I really think this means because I misled you the first time around. So yeah, massive difference between false prophet, who I think is a non-Christian and a person who prophesies falsely, who may well be a Christian, and they just happen to miss it. Yeah. So following on interpretation, uh, I want you to speak on, there's an example in Acts where Paul is going to Rome, I believe, and he's given a, a warning. Um, can, uh, so how does that, you know, is, how's that an example of maybe a misinterpretation? Sure. Well, it's in Acts chapter 21. I just turned there. So people, um, we, we read in Acts 21, 4. Uh, that the disciples in the city of Tyre, through the Spirit, were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So here they're saying, don't go. And then a little bit later on, um, Agabus, a, a recognized prophet, comes along and says, if you go to Jerusalem, this, here's what's going to happen to you. They're going to bind you. They're going to carry you off. Your life is going to be in jeopardy. And it says that Luke and all of his traveling companions were repeatedly pleading with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And the interesting thing is, is that Paul had already been told by the Spirit that he should go to Jerusalem. Um, back in Acts chapter, um, trying to find it exactly, you know, where was it? Acts chapter, um, yeah, um, 19 verse 21, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 20, uh, he says that the Spirit has already told me that um, I'm going to, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why am I going? I'm constrained by the Spirit. So the Spirit had already told Paul, go to Jerusalem. 
And he said, I don't know what's going to happen except that the spirit testifies to me. I want to be persecuted. So what happened? I think the disciples at Tyre and Agabus had a genuine revelation from God. And the revelation was, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's going to, he's going to be persecuted. It's going to be bad for him. How did they interpret that? They interpreted that to mean you shouldn't go. Uh-huh. How did they apply it? They begged Paul, don't go. I think probably the revelation was accurate. Their interpretation and application were wrong. And that's why Paul says, he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Spirit's already told me that's where I'm supposed to go. So, yeah, I think that's a good example of this, this threefold distinction that I've been drawing. Yeah. Yeah, I think I love, I love that example. It's really good. I just realized I referred to, I said Rome when it was really Jerusalem. That's the second time I've, um, you know, sort of messed up as far as the book of Acts. So I need to get back. That must there. make you a false prophet, right? Or a false teacher. One of the two. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so sometimes, as you mentioned, you know, when we look at false prophets, you know, you would say that that person is, is demonically empowered um and we have you know there's like psychics and clairvoyance and you know people that, that do that sort of thing is it possible for for someone that is prophesying from god uh to then later um could you later then accuse that person also hearing from a, a demon right um well, let, let's, let's not limit, let's put this in a broader context. Why do we limit that to prophecy? Hmm. Um, any spiritual gift can be exercised well, and then later on, that individual can, for whatever reason, maybe unrepentant sin or individual willful rebellion, come under the influence of a demonic spirit. It's not just prophecy. It's not just the miraculous gifts. Any spiritual gift. Same with teaching. Um, yeah. Can a man who's truly born again stand up and accurately teach the word of God on the basis of his spiritual gift of teaching? And then later on, for whatever reason, fall prey to doctrines of demons. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 4. Yeah, of course. But that has nothing to do with the nature of a gift or any spiritual gift in particular. Um, so... Sure, uh, a person can, um, can exercise a gift and do so accurately under the influence of the Spirit. And then, sadly, for whatever reason, um, they fall into unrepentant sin or immorality or some form of idolatry, and they can open their lives to the influence of a demonic spirit. Yeah, that can happen. But here's the important thing to remember. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere are we told to be afraid of spiritual gifts because of that possibility. Nowhere did Paul or John or Luke or Peter or anybody say, hey, careful, folks, you, you need to put on the brakes when it comes to your desire for spiritual gifts, because you open yourself up to that, you might get a demon, you know, you might be misled and end up uh, speaking, you know, heresy. Yeah. That is nowhere found in the New Testament. Yeah. So people just need to put to rest the yeah, uh, in this regard. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you've touched on this earlier when you talked about edification and encouragement, but can you give us uh, some examples of some practical uses of the gift of prophecy within the local church setting? Uh, sure. I won't give you the details, um, but 
Uh, we have a lady here at Bridgeway. She's incredibly gifted. In fact, several men, women and men are, but she's uniquely gifted. And for the last several Sundays during our ministry time, she has come to the platform and uh, she's given uh, words of knowledge or prophetic utterances, identifying certain characteristics in people that sound weird to some, but in every instance, it's turned out to be spot on accurate. She says, I, I think the reason why the Lord showed me this is because he understands the situation you're in right now. And she might even describe what it is, what you're struggling with. And I think I'm supposed to pray for you. And sure enough, lo and behold, these people come and say, man, you nailed it. That's me. How could you know those things? And yes, I need you to pray that specific issue into my life. We see that happen almost every Sunday. Uh, wow. We see it happen in our small groups. It's just, it's a wonderful way in which people are built up and encouraged by the exercise of the revelatory gifts. Yeah, that is, that is encouraging. Yeah. So I definitely encourage anyone listening to, to pray for that gift because that, uh, that's, so, that's so powerful. It's, it's so, it's amazing to hear that um, you're having that experience at Bridgeway. So um, yeah, definitely listen me up to hear that. Um, why do you think prophecy is so rare? Why is it so rare? Well, it depends on what kind of church you're in. It, it isn't rare in our church. Yeah. Is it rare in other churches that believe that it's real and they facilitate it and they encourage people to exercise it and then create safe places where they can? If you go to a cessationist Bible church, it's gonna, not only going to be rare, it's going to be non-existent. Why? Right. Because people yeah. don't earnestly desire it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1. They suppress it. They rule it out of order. They would accuse anybody who exercised the gift of being demonized. So there's a lot of um, suppression and quenching of the spirit. There's a lot of, um, you know, legislating against it. There's a lot of fear. Um, but, you know, you say it's rare. Um, in the circles where I run, it's not rare. Yeah, that's cool. It's awesome. Um, cool. Yeah, but I, th I think you answered that real, real well. Um, you have to believe in it first, right? Uh, yeah. And then you have to desire it. Um, you know, I think that's one thing. It makes space for its exercise. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned your, in, in your podcast that it's okay to, and we should pray for these things. Yep. Um, the, the gifting is not necessarily just going to be given to us um, with, without our um, asking for, it. you know, sometimes it, it, it takes a step of faith um, to step forward and, and ask for those things and, and they'll be given. And, you know, we may not be given them because we don't ask. So uh, I think that's cool. Uh, I want to move into healing now. Um, and I really loved your story about your, your first experience as a child uh, with a migraine. Can you share that story? Sure. I remember it vividly. I was 11 years old. We were living in Midland, Texas, just moved there about a year earlier. Um, and I had one night, I had the worst headache I've ever had in my life. It was just paralyzing. And I'm assuming it's a migraine. I'd never had one before. I probably didn't even know the word then. And I was lying in bed and I couldn't go to sleep and I couldn't even speak out to call my mother or father to bring me an aspirin or something because it was just excruciating. People who've had migraines know what that means and what it feels like. And I did something that only 11 year old kid would do. I said, I said quietly, I, I didn't even speak aloud just in my head. I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to count to three and I need you to heal me of this. And I said, one, two, and the instant I said three, total healing, not a gradual diminishing over time of pain, instantaneous 
absence. I felt absolutely glorious. And I remember thinking, <clears throat> did this really happen? Right. And I thought, I, can I, move? I was afraid to move my head thinking it would come back. And then I started moving it. And I, I mean, I thought, my goodness, the whole thing is gone. I, I have absolutely not the slightest tinge of pain. That was strange. I don't, I don't hesitate to say it was strange. Um, I think God did that for me just to alert me to the fact, hey, Sam, I'm really here. I do hear your prayers. And sometimes I, I'm inclined to answer them in this miraculous way. So don't ever stop asking, asking me for healing for yourself and for others. Amen. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that, that childlike faith counting to three. That's just such a cool story. Um, and it leads into my, my next question about, about the role of faith and healing, because you see, um, you see kind of both ends of the extreme where, where the word of faith uh, says that if, if you don't see healing, that you don't have enough faith and that, you know, places that, that burden uh, on you. Um, and then, you know, on the other end, you see sort of a, you know, like sometimes faithless prayers where, you know, you don't really expect healing, but you pray for it just because you feel like you ought to, or you sometimes you'll hear people pray and they'll say, well, if this doesn't happen, it's okay. So, you know, you, you almost kind of like this defeatist type of, um, you know, praying for healing where you, you, there's just no actual faith in, in it happening. So what is the role of faith in healing? Well, first of all, are there extremes? Yes. The word of faith movement. Are there abuses where if, if, if you don't get healed or something doesn't happen, um, people accuse you of lacking faith and it's all your fault? Yes, those, unfortunately, those kind of sad scenarios occur. But we can't let that uh, lead us to deny what Scripture clearly says. And Scripture talks about the importance of faith. Um, you know, Jesus says in the Gospels multiple times, be it done unto you according to your faith, and they're healed. Um, he, you know, the blind man, the uh, leopard, Jesus said, do you believe I'm able to do this? They said, yes. He said, be it done unto you according to your faith. Um, in uh, James chapter 5, he talks about the elders praying the prayer of faith. So <clears throat> the important thing to remember is, <coughs> excuse me, faith comes not always in the same size and the same degree of intensity. It varies. Um, sometimes there's an incredible confidence. Sometimes there's moderate confidence. Sometimes there's no faith at all. I mean, Jesus healed in the absence of anyone's faith. Uh, the guy who was blind at the, what was it? Um, the pool of Siloam. And Jesus even had to ask him, you want to, you want to be healed? Yeah. And the guy, I, th I always thought, Jesus, why would you ask anybody that question? I mean, of course he wants to. Well, maybe he didn't want to, but in any case, there was no faith there. Um, so sometimes faith is operative. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the faith of the person who's sick. Sometimes it's the faith of a friend. Sometimes there's no faith at all. <clears throat> so I do think we need to say, yes, faith is important. Is it always necessary? No, that doesn't mean we should diminish the reality of it and the urgency in scripture for us to believe. So I always start out, I say, when I'm praying for somebody, do you believe that God is able to do this? Do you think he's powerful enough to heal you right now? I trust most of them say, yeah. So do you believe that God is great? Do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that he's compassionate and he loves to bless his children? Yeah. I say, well, on that basis, let's pray. Doesn't mean everybody gets healed, but there are some who do. And so, yeah, faith plays a role. 
but it just it varies in the ways in which it is expressed. Yeah, that's great. And so the last gift I want to talk to uh, talk about is faith. Um, you know, it's referred to as one of the gifts. So I think that's one that I've never really heard, you know, taught or preached about um, because, you know, we we know what faith is, but I don't know if I know exactly what that is as a gifting. Sure. Well, in my writings, in my book on understanding spiritual gifts, um, <clears throat> I differentiate between three kinds of faith. And this language is not original with me, so I take no credit for it. There is converting faith. That's the faith that we express when we put our trust in Jesus for salvation. There is continuing faith. We might call it sanctifying faith, a faith that we exercise on a daily basis as we trust God for provision and, and we uh, grow in our confidence in his goodness, his greatness. And then thirdly, there's charismatic faith. And that's the kind of faith that is a special, unique gift. Um, I like the way D.A. Carson just defines it. He calls it a supernatural surge of confidence that God is going to do something right now for which we don't have any explicit biblical warrant. So um, it's that, and the only people, the only way you know, can describe it is if you actually experience it. I've had this happen three or four times. It's not the kind of faith that I just mentioned, that God is able and that God is, is good and compassionate. It's the faith by which all doubt is expelled, and I know with absolute certainty not presumption, but certainty from God that God's going to heal or, or work miraculously right now. That happens very rarely, and that's a special gift. I don't think anybody can produce that on their own. I don't think you can carry it around in your back pocket and whip it out every time you, you, you want to pray for somebody. It's a, a gift of God's sovereign mercy at the time and in the circumstance that he chooses. So that, I think, is the gift of faith, and it can happen to any Christian um, I pray for it every time I pray for the sick. God doesn't always bestow it. That doesn't mean I don't still pray for them. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, and that's kind of part of your testimony as well. It's just, you know, continuing to, to pray, um, you know, even if uh, you don't receive it every time. Uh, I have one more question on gifts, and then I want to transition into our closing segment. Uh, and that is why, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned cessationists um, before you kind of were, were, were taught that. Um, why is it, do you think, you know, without, you know, kind of arguing for or, uh, or against it, um, just in, in, it's, I want to kind of get at why people embrace that sort of teaching, uh, that the gifts have ceased. Uh, why do you think that, that people resist and deny these gifts? Sure. Despite you know, what you're saying. And, and, you know, Number one, that's what they were taught growing up, like me. Or they were taught that in school by professors they respect. And to disagree with that seems to be disrespectful. Seems to say, well, gosh, could all these people who love me and taught me all these years have been so very, very wrong. So mm -hmm. there's kind of an inborn, inbred um, resistance to changing one's view. Secondly, there's fear. This may be the most important one of all. Fear of what will happen if I do embrace this view. Will I lose my job? Will I lose my friends? Will I lose my place in church? 
Will people identify me with these fanatics that I see on TV who do really goofy things and bring reproach on the name of Christ? Um, then I think also there's fear of the unknown. I, I don't know what's going to happen, and I like to keep control. I don't like to yield to anyone outside of myself. Um, and trusting the spirit in these areas is a little scary, a little unnerving. Then I think also that some people are under the mistaken notion that these gifts actually ceased in church history. They say, well, you know, didn't, didn't they die out after the first century? And if God wanted them to be present for us today, wouldn't he have continued giving them? And that's one of the most incredible distortions uh, that I hear from cessationists. In my book, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, I have an entire chapter where I quote from original sources all the way from the early first century, all the way up through church history, um, how the gifts continue to operate, continue to be given, how people, the early church fathers, the apologists, the apostolic fathers, all operated in these gifts. And I say all, there were some who were cessationists, but they were, they were in the minority. And then I think lastly, I think the misinterpretation of certain texts like 1 Corinthians 13 and Hebrews 2, um, they are not saying what cessationists uh, want, want you to believe they're saying. And I respond to each of these in my book and give, I hope, are clear answers as to why those texts do not support cessationism. Um, and once I saw that there just simply wasn't any biblical grounding for it, I rejected it. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, like I said, the podcast and your work and, and, and be able to communicate that you know, so well. Um, I want to move into our closing segment here, which is you know, just be more about you personally. So um, what are some of your favorite movies, books, uh, and music? <laughs> oh, my. Well, the answer to the music one is very short and very limited. The old, I listen to two kinds of music and two kinds only. Christian worship music and the 60s. <laughs> so nice. those are two different genres altogether, but... Yeah. That's about the only kind of music I listen to. I haven't listened to a, a, a pop music group uh, for, gosh, 40 years. I just don't, yeah. I just don't listen to it. I don't even know the names. He's never heard these people before. Yeah. So it's either the 1960s when I was growing up and in high school, uh, or it's Christian music. Um, movies, oh, my goodness. Um, my favorite all-time movies, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and then Shifting Genre. Field of Dreams, uh, nice. To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my favorite movies. Cool. Uh, so yeah, I would I would list those at the very top, um, even though they're, I mean they're totally different. Two of them are really violent and dark, and the other two are very yeah. uplifting and encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was the other thing? Movies, uh, music, books. and what? Books. books. Uh, anything that can be read. <laughs> um, I love reading biographies of Christian individuals and even non-Christian. I love historical biographies. Uh, I love, believe it or not, I love reading commentaries, just gain insight into scripture. I love reading anything theological in nature. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I love reading. I'm not much into fiction, but if I do read fiction, I love reading um, the novels of Jean Le Carré. Uh, he died recently, a British spy novelist, talks about Cold War espionage. I love reading those, um, but not much into fiction, never have been. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. Um, so favorite uh, book of the Bible, favorite character of the Bible besides Jesus, um, and then a favorite verse or a verse that's really encouraged you or that you enjoy teaching? 
favorite book probably be Second Corinthians because I think it's so pastoral and I think every local church pastor needs to read it and study it closely. It has just such incredible practical wisdom. And it's also because it's largely neglected by a lot of people. They like First Corinthians, but Second Corinthians is probably my favorite book. Favorite Bible character? Oh, gosh. Um, probably, I, I mean, nothing unusual about this. Probably Paul, just yeah. because I'm so, I mean, I'm preaching through Romans now, and I just, I'm just loving it. Yeah. Um, favorite life verses? Probably um, two specifically, uh, Psalm 1611. Thou hast made known to me the pathway of life in your presence is, is a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And then also Zephaniah 3.17, where it talks about God singing in love for us, uh, such as the delight he has in his children. Those are probably the two most powerful. Wow, awesome. That's so cool. Um, what do you like to do for fun? I read and I write. That's, <laughs> those are my hobbies. Um, I go to movies. I love going to movies. Um, and, um, yeah, but my hobbies are mainly my, my life's work in ministry and what I do in my leisure time are indistinguishable. Yeah. That's so so I cool. go on vacation. People say, what'd you do? I said, well, I read six books and I wrote two. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Um, what are the, your top five events in the Bible that you would like to visit as a spectator? Oh, Genesis 1-1. I would love to have been there when there wasn't anything and God called it all into existence out of nothing. Yeah. Uh, certainly the uh, watching the, uh, the 10 plagues poured out upon Egypt would have been great along with the Red Sea. Yeah. Um, uh, the birth of Jesus, my goodness. Death and resurrection. Would have loved to have been present at Pentecost. Uh, I think mm -hmm. all of those. I would have loved to have been side by side with John when he uh, was given the vision that resulted in the book of Revelation. That would have been awesome, uh, too. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You went, you went for the grand and epic. I love that. Um, of course, you know, we, we think of the, the, the birth of Christ as, as grand and epic, but, you know, it was in a lot of ways a very intimate and, and, and humble and, um, you know, subtle, I guess. But also but, very normal. Yeah. 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 Um, all right, uh, so we'll, we'll wrap up here soon. Can you give us the gospel in one minute or less? Sure. The gospel is the glorious good news of what God has done through the sinless life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection of Jesus to satisfy his wrath against us and to secure for us the forgiveness of sins that we might be reconciled to him by faith in Christ. That's the gospel. Amen. All right. Um, so tell people how to, you know, get in touch with you, where to find your books and where to listen to sure. your podcast. Yeah, all my books, uh, probably the best place is Amazon. That's probably where you get the best discount. Um, I've written several in the last two years, Practicing the Power, Welcoming the Gifts of the Spirit into Your Life. Uh, pastors, I think, especially should, would like that because I talk about how to implement gifts in the life of the church. The Language of Heaven, gift, uh, the book on the gift of tongues. Um, I wrote... Um, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, a comprehensive guide. Zondervan publishes that. It goes about 370 pages, goes through everything about the gifts of the Spirit. Cool. I wrote a sequel to it called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, a comprehensive guide. Wow. Um, that's only been out since April of this year. And uh, I address the issues of spiritual warfare in every question, every issue. 
that you might have with that. I try to be comprehensive. I know I probably left out some things. Um, but they can also find my writings and all my sermons in both audio and video at samstorms.org. Awesome. Uh, I blog there. Um, I have hundreds and hundreds of articles on a variety of topics available there. So www.samstorms, samstorms.org. That's awesome. where they can link my podcast as well. Cool. Yeah, and I'll put a link that in the show notes. Um, but I'll have you close this out in prayer before uh, before you do that. I just want to say uh, thank you so much. I just feel like you're a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. All right. Can you close this out? Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. You have revealed your heart to us. Would you give us um, a passion and a hunger to keep our finger on the text of Scripture? And, Lord, give us... Um, Give us a zeal and a hunger for a greater outpouring of your spirit to operate through the many gifts that he uh, uh, grants to the children of God. Give us a hunger and desire for this and let us use them in accordance with your word, to the glory of your name and the building up of your people. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sam. My pleasure. God bless. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share this with somebody you know. Like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, leave us a rating and review. You can email me at thewearchristianpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.